Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Stephen Loris. He's a neurologist, professor of neurology, and director at Coma Science Group, and an author. We're talking about the neuroscience of meditation. Meditation and mindfulness practice has gained a lot of popularity over the last few decades, but the effects are inherently difficult to observe because they're internal. Thankfully, Stephen is one of the leading clinicians and researchers in the field of neurology and has scanned the brains of some of the world's heavyweight meditators. So today, expect to learn what structural changes occur in the brain after consistent meditation practice, why meditation impacts happiness, what Stephen learned from The Happiest Man Alive, what neuroscience can tell us about happiness from deep sea divers, and much more. One of the problems that we encounter with meditation is that the trait changes, the long-term effects to your day-to-day existence, they take a while to accumulate. You need to actually get some time under tension doing the practice to be able to see that change in your daily experience, and inevitably that causes people to lose faith or motivation with their daily practice. Thankfully, seeing the physical changes in the brain from someone who gets to look at these things on a screen like Stephen hopefully should give those of you who are maybe wobbling with your meditation practice a big kick up the arse that this is one of the most important things that you can do to benefit your mental health. And uh, Stephen has this his lovely Belgian accent. So yeah, enjoy that. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, The more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now it is time for the wise and wonderful Stephen Loris. Why are you studying something as fluffy as meditation as a neuroscientist? It's a very good first question. Actually, I never, ever thought I would be giving a podcast interview like this one on a subject that I considered indeed as fluffy, esoteric, whatever, um, definitely not evidence-based. Uh, remember a, a journalist Uh, As a medical doctor uh, specializing in the study of consciousness and the damaged brain, I did my PhD thesis, and that was in 2000. And uh, shortly after, a journalist asked me, well, what do you think uh, about mindfulness? And I remember at the time, that's the scientist in me checking quickly, well, what's being published? And I wasn't convinced. So I I, I really... um, 
a lot has happened since then. Uh, and here I am now as a neurologist uh, prescribing uh, meditation in my consultation as a scientist studying um, what's happening in, in the mind of, of uh, these guys who are experts in meditation. And also personally, I think I, I enjoyed the benefits, even if definitely I'm not a, a Zen master at all. Why? Why? What's drawn you to this interest? Well, as as is often the case, I think, and I also see it in 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 the patients I see in the outpatient clinic. It was a personal crisis, so um, we the details are in the book. But very shortly, uh, 2012, um, I suddenly was uh, dead alone with the three young kids. Um, and not feeling well, uh, feeling anxious about how I would deal with that, feeling also guilty, how could this happen? You know, you have this little voice in your head, probably sounds familiar. And so, of course, you can't change the past and you're worrying about the future. And uh, then other things are uh, happening. I was smoking a lot. I was drinking. The psychiatrist prescribed me sleeping pills, antidepressants. And... It was it was clear that this wasn't the inspiring dad I wanted to be. So I started doing yoga, um, but then it was um, meeting a Buddhist monk in Paris where I gave a TEDx 2013 about my area of expertise, which is uh, the damaged brain and changes in consciousness. And Mathieu Ricard, um, translator of the Dalai Lama, talked about his area of expertise, meditation, compassion. And I still don't know why, but uh, very quickly uh, we we got along well. And he said, well, obviously I, 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 he felt I, I wasn't uh, well and said, come with me. I'm, I'm going on this retreat. And uh, that was the first retreat organized by Mind and Life Europe, a beautiful um, German monastery. And that was for me a new world. Um, and so I said to him, well, you come to my lab in Belgium, Liège, as a guinea pig. And, and so it happened. And, and yeah, a new area of research uh, started. What does the quote, it is not reality that matters, it is the way you experience reality, mean to you? It's, of course, it's true, right? Uh, yet... The challenge is to, to really, you know, um, somehow learn to, um, you need to realize that indeed it's, it's your mind uh, giving you these perceptions, thoughts, emotions. Uh, that's what's really important. And, and so I, of course, knew that as, as a uh, neurologist uh, seeing all these families who lost their loved one. And so our expertise is traumatic brain injury. So from one moment to the other, life is, is different. And, and um, so, so then you, you, you understand what's truly important. Uh, but, but to me, this is, this is really an important lesson that of course you can't 
change uh, everything. And it's very clear also now with COVID, you know, there's a couple of things just happening to us. And then there's things that where we can, of course, um, you know, have an influence and, and change and, and uh, work on those things. And the rest we just um, can somehow learn to accept them. And and for me, that was a, a personal um, uh, discovery and, and, and still working on that. Uh, so definitely, I think it's 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 a powerful, true quote. It seems to have it's the epicenter of a lot of other different modes of thinking, right? So you have the dichotomy of control, or the Stoic fork from Stoicism, uh, the, the sort of CBT as well. I suppose reminds you where the boundaries lie with regards to what you can and can't control. Then you look at. Um, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning? Viktor Frankl. You talk about Viktor Frankl, man's sort of final bastion is his ability to respond however he chooses to in any given situation. And um, yeah, realizing that the problem is not the problem. Your thoughts about the problem are the problem. Realizing that and fully internalizing that is a, it's a, a life-changing moment, I think, but one that we, we constantly want to try and resist for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, and and maybe also, um, so of course, you know, sometimes I just see patients where I think, well, I don't know what to say because they 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 lost a child, and then I discuss with them, and they say, well, you know, our other daughter committed suicide, and then this happened. There's so many things that you say, how is this possible? Okay, so of course. Um, it, it it is important and and we need to acknowledge you know things that are thrown at us professionally personally um but then truly we can we can have an impact okay what do i do um with with all of this and um somehow uh, it's a bit strange that we we need to find it out uh and it's a trial and error thing uh, why not talk about this at school. I mean, um, it's so important. It's it's something, again, I see in consultation, people with anxiety, depression, burnout. Um, and how come we kind of um, neglect our emotional well-being, how we can deal with everything that's happening to us? We have um, teachers, uh, you know, um, working on, on our physical well-being and, and gymnastics, and it's part of the um, curriculum. And, and to me, it's possible to, to have something similar, but, but you know, teachers uh, who can help us to deal with our emotional well-being. And so I think meditation should be taught at school. It's an interesting thing to think about that we are thrust into the world as adults having to deal with the vicissitudes of life and the inevitable challenges of the death of ourselves and everyone that we love if that doesn't happen before us. And we are given essentially zero tools by the formal education system to be yeah. able to deal with that. Nothing, yeah. nothing. Yeah. All of the mindfulness practices, any semblance of rationality that I have managed to develop have been completely self-taught or learned outside of that formal education system. And I was in full-time education for 18 years, up to a master's level. Not once did anyone teach me about how emotions work, 
about what the nature of consciousness is, about how to look at the texture of my own mind, about how to separate what is happening from what I am feeling and so on and so forth. So yeah, I um, th th this is an entire other uh, branch to go down, but I think that there is so much dissatisfaction with the education system wholesale at the moment that it's a matter of time before that becomes the majority and that pressure is going to cause. I know that mindfulness is already being taught in, in many schools, um, but even more so than that, talking about time management skills, talking about to-do list management and productivity skills, general life skills, communication, relationship management, sex education that doesn't teach you things like the vulva. I don't even know what a vulva is, but you know, <laughs> things that actually matter. Um, so yes, I'm confident for that. But today, I want to go through the neuroscience of meditation. You were a man who's had some of the the equivalent of the heavyweight world champions of meditation in your right. lab, and you've strapped them into those strange-looking sort of skullcap things that are behind you on the shelf. Yeah, For the people that are listening, it looks like what you'd imagine a peasant from sort of the, the Middle Ages wearing, uh, but th that's been thrown into machines. So to start off with, how would you characterize the state of the brain in a non-meditator as they just go about their day? So um, somehow this is what we've been studying for the past 25 years, right? So so our expertise is the damaged brain and, and we're um, confronted with people who are comatose and who survive these very severe brain damages and then asking the question, well, are there any thoughts or perceptions or emotions? Um, but meditation is really all about that. It's about the little voice in your head. Um, if I would shut up now and um, the people listening would, would experience these thoughts, the continuous stream of consciousness, jumping from one thing to the other. Um, and we start to understand it a little bit better. So with the team, we um, identified two networks of consciousness. One is sensory perceptual awareness. That's everything that you hear and see right now. Everything coming through your senses would basically depend on a frontoparietal, um, what we call neuronal workspace. And then there's the other component, um, internal awareness, the little voice in your head that permits you to do mental imagery. The brain is a prediction machine. It's very powerful. You can anticipate. So that's another network more um, in the middle of the brain, front and back, um, also called the default mode network. So important for these, these thoughts that can, of course, also, you know, um, spin out of control, making you um, anxious uh, sometimes, uh, drive you crazy, keep you from uh, uh, having um, good sleep. So yeah, that's, that's what the brain does. And actually we know it even is the case in the damaged brain after coma. We, we've seen with these brain scans, there is still uh, some workings of the mind and brain, even in um, general anesthetics uh, when you're sleeping. So you need to be brain dead really to have it um, completely silent. You're and telling meditation... me that that's, that's the only way to be brain dead is the only way to finally escape my thoughts. 
Well, I, I discussed this with the Dalai Lama. So thanks to Mathieu Ricard, my good friend, I had the opportunity to spend uh, a day and, and meet a couple of times Dalai Lama, who's incredibly inspiring, right? Uh, but even these these top athletes, as you call them, um, you know, they have thoughts, uh, yet they have learned through tens of thousands of hours of meditation to uh, kind of observe them. And I think that's the trick. So you just learn to focus your attention. And meditation to me is about um, training your mind. It's mental gymnastics. There's different ways to do it. Attention is a key word. You can have your attention focused on your breathing, an object, whatever, your mantra. Um, and, and that's very powerful. You can also do it not just with thoughts, but with emotions. That's the favorite um, meditation exercise of, of Mathieu Ricard. It's, it's training um, empathy, compassion. So the brain, of course, we now know in neuroscience is, is not fixed. You know, there is the whole field of, of neuroplasticity. It's permanently changing. And so we can and maybe we should play a more active role there. I discovered upon reading your book that it was only until recently ago that we knew, or recently in relative terms, scientists thought that all of the neurons that you had were present at birth. And it's only recently that neuroplasticity and the ability to change the brain, I suppose that before that, justifying why someone should meditate if there's not going to be any physical changes to the brain becomes a much harder sell. But after that, you can say, well, Actually, look, we can see what's going on. And that's, you, you go through um, a process of focused attention meditation that you've done under your imaging. Can you take us through the process of what happens, the focus, the distraction, and, and, and how that sort of manifests neurologically? Yeah. So um, it, it, that's exactly the exercise. So you can compare it somehow to sports, right? You can take a weight and, and train your biceps, and uh, you will actually see its increase in volume. It's a bit, harder to see what's happening in your in your brain right but these brain scans show that the exercise is actually you um focusing your attention let's say to your breathing and then a thought would come up and and you would observe that you know you're losing the attention and you just bring it back to the object here uh your breathing and that circle of always bringing back attention and the networks uh, involved is exactly what we see with both functional MRI or what you see behind me, these EEG machines measuring electrical activity of the brain. Um, and so depending on the exercise you do here, training the attention networks, you really see those parts of the brain actually become thicker. That's what we saw in these uh, Buddhist monks and the connections, the pathways um, becoming thicker, stronger, more efficient. And the more connected brain is a more efficient brain. So that was for me as a scientist, um, such an eye opener to see with these objective measures when people like Mathieu Ricard and other monks were in the machines, how they had a very um, efficient and direct control on their thoughts, perceptions, emotions, and how we could actually see it with the machines. And that would, that's what we uh, published. Isn't it crazy that if somehow the work that we did internally on our brains was shown externally, 
Matthew Ricard and the Dalai Lama would be walking around like professional bodybuilders. They'd look like these hulking sort of monsters of muscle and mass. <laughs> yeah, right. And so for us, of course, it's it's interesting to look at those extremes. Now, I'm not a Buddhist. Uh, I'm not a monk. Uh, and and I actually, when um, the, the publisher, uh, the, the book company asked me to write a book about meditation, I said, well, you know, who am I? I am, um, and then somehow, uh, yes, I, I, I thought, well, if I can do it uh, with my, you know, as a control freak, I'm such a nervous personality, anyone can do it. And and also I thought a, a number of books that I, I, I read uh, somehow for me were quite demanding. And, and also um, there's the often the Buddhist angle, right? And and as my wife says, when, when Mathieu comes, he always would stay at home. And she said, well, it's easy for him to be Zen. You know, he has no partner, um, no job. And Is all she the blaming pressure, her no lack kids. of mindfulness on you, Stephen? I think you, <laughs> you, you, that might be a low-key dig. But I, I maybe, maybe, but but it's true. You know, we we have a life very different from these Buddhist monks, right? So uh, how do we do it? And I think that um, maybe we sometimes are too demanding, uh, you know, both um, for others and ourselves. And and so I just wanted to uh, propose something that that is is um, easy to do when you have the formal exercises and so it's good to you know go um on your uh mat and sit for 10 20 minutes whatever um in 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 your uh, meditation uh, posture but what do you do the rest of the day right so so uh i figured out that there's many ways to to uh do meditation and sometimes we just do it without explicitly calling it meditation when you're running when you're and and so to me that was um very good way actually to to have uh the 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 positive effects when in my consultation and, and there's a lot of things there dramatic as as we said people losing their loved one and so on between two patients families i would just um take a couple of deep breaths and and maybe the first one is the most difficult one where you just refocus you 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 offer yourself a pause but you can do that on the train in in you know the grocery store when you're queuing uh so so that uh kind of and I'm not a Zen master, ask my wife and kids, uh, but but it can really make a difference to to be in the moment, to uh, observe those thoughts, those emotions, and somehow we create it all in our mind, right? And so we, we have all these things going on and then we lose ourselves in it and uh, you can just train it. And, and, and I think that's, that's good for, for, my work as a as a medical doctor, as a um, director here of, of of the lab at the university, which is also very competitive, um, and and within my my relation, uh, so that's what I wanted to to share. Uh, if I can do it, anyone can do it. So that's an interesting state change, right? What happens acutely around the practice of meditation, you get this parasympathetic response, especially if you're combining it with the breathing, so on and so forth. A lot of the people that are listening will probably be at least familiar with having tried meditation and maybe to get into it. Um, can you 
walk us through the effects of long-standing meditation practices in the brain. How's that characterized? What what happens when you put someone like Matthew Ricard, or I guess you haven't had the Dalai Lama in, but when you get these expert these expert meditators, is he? Well, if he's listening. If he's listening, tell him <laughs> tell him to hurry up, and he can stay at your he can stay at yours with your wife. Um, but yeah, what what's the characteristic of of their sort of brain? How do they look? So absolutely right, Chris. When you take a couple of breaths, uh, you will just feel right that, that there is a direct effect. Your uh, heart rate goes down, blood pressure, uh, your stress hormones. If you would measure them, cortisol and adrenaline, and then long-term effects uh, and not of course not only in these monks studies have shown that if uh, you start doing this after eight weeks we would see also in in your brain uh, structural changes so this is a 3d print of the brain of Mathieu Ricard he's a little bit with us um, today if we measure the gray matter volume so the these billions of brain cells neurons those uh, specific parts of the attentional network, um, regions like the hippocampus here deep in, in the temporal lobe, would really show an increase in volume. So we can measure that and we control for a number of confounding factors. Um, structures like prefrontal areas, anterior cingulate cortex. So areas of the brain involved in attentional control emotional control. They really change um, their volume and their connectivity because that's the strength of the brain, right? These billions of neurons uh, are talking to each other. So that's through the um, white matter tracts, which is something I can show you here. It's an image we're not used to see. So this is, again, the brain of Mathieu, but now we look inside. So these are the thousands of billions of um, connections and we would for example see um, the tracts connecting the left and the right hemisphere and so if you meditate there's more of these big uh, highways permitting both parts of the brain to to uh, work together so that's what we would really see structural changes in the brain when you do meditation and that's reflected in a phenomenological change in the texture of the mind right this isn't just like having bigger muscles it's bigger muscles that can lift heavier weight yeah absolutely so so i think um we can all benefit from this no need of course to uh it's it's again like sport you know you you don't need to run an iron man already if you go for your jogging on sundays this is a good thing probably we don't um, move enough and so just to have more attention not just for your physical well-being, but also your mental well-being, I, I think is is worth talking about. And and um, for for all of us, for, for myself as a caregiver, it's it's really strange. I'm supposed to take care of others, but somehow I, I was never taught how to take care of myself. And um, my my job, I'm I'm at risk for burnout. I've got two colleagues who committed suicide. We know this for so long. And as you say, there's all these wonderful initiatives on mindfulness, but nothing really structural that is part of the curriculum. And I think that that can and, and should change. Have you looked at how different volumes of meditation track with changes in the brain over time? So have you looked at somebody, say, who's done a thousand sessions, 5,000 sessions, 10,000 sessions? Have you been able to have a look at, at that? 
So uh, there's a number of really good uh, labs worldwide looking at those kind of uh, longitudinal uh, effects. Uh, people like Tanya Singer in um, Germany who are really following over time cohorts of people who start to meditate using all these brain scans and showing that, yes, um, practice makes perfect, but it's not about being perfect. It's already about, you know, um, going through this personal journey. And it's, it's, it's a challenge, of course, for us. It's way easier to show that one or the other pill, right? Anxiolytic or antidepressant or painkiller has an effect compared to a placebo. Um, and I would prescribe for everyone the same, um, whatever drug and, and, um, see the effect here. It's, it's, it's more of a challenge because how do you meditate? Uh, there's a lot of variability there. And yet, as you just, uh, said, there are these studies showing the correlation about what you're doing and what's happening in your mind and brain. It's such a shame that our internal state is hidden from us right like as a practice meditator both of us will be familiar with finishing a session and not really knowing if we did well or badly and then reminding ourselves that having any sort of judgment about our sit is negative in any case and i need to return to the equanimity and da -da 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 so on and so forth um but it, it's significantly easier if you're a power lifter and there's 250 kilos on the floor. You know it's on the floor. You know how heavy it is. You know if you've picked it up. It's a very binary can win or loss game, right? How many times did the ball go in the net? How many hoops did you get the ball through, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I think that's that's definitely one of the challenges or one of the resistances that people have to meditation, that it is inherently so murky to ourselves the success metrics which everybody gamifies everything now right how many followers do you have on instagram you how many steps did you do today how many calories did you burn we want that objective metric of success and um i'm not a massive fan of muse and other similar products i've used them for a very long time and i, I personally for me they, they they just don't seem to get at what meditation is supposed to be about but yes i appreciate i appreciate that's the case did you here's another thing that I'm intrigued to know, have you looked at the optimal session length for achieving returns? I imagine that there must be a point at which the returns in terms of brain change become to diminish, but I'm familiar with a bunch of different um, meditators who talk about the first 10 to 15 minutes of some sits essentially be you settling into the sit itself. There's advocates out there who would say that Yes, get your five minutes in whenever you can, and I agree, but there must also be an optimal amount of time. Have you had a look at that? Yes, but I, I think um, it's it's a challenging question, right? It depends why do you meditate? Okay, so what are your needs? Um, maybe we should clearly separate if you have a medical problem, if you have one or the other symptoms that, you know, um, you can't work properly or function, then go talk to your uh, medical practitioner and he will send you, if need be, to a psychologist or uh, do uh, other tests. That That's one thing. The other, of course, it's why wait? Many of my patients say, why wait? It's a pity. I waited till my, you know, tension headache or insomnia or burnout, whatever, to discover the, the, the benefits of meditation. So, of course, we should um, be more, oops, uh, uh, doing the, 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 the preventive 
part. And, and um, it's a question I often hear. So, so okay, what should I do for how long? And people, it's not competition. Um, there's no Olympics here. Uh, my personal take is that really uh, you do what you can um, and you have the formal sessions, uh, 20 minutes, but, you know, sometimes... Um, I have five kids, so Chris, sometimes in the morning... 30, 30 seconds complete, can feel like a lifetime. Complete yeah. chaos, <laughs> and when Mathieu says... You, you take that time, Steve, and you... But I don't, you know, sleep is also important, and all the other things, I don't want to... So uh, that's why I think also informal meditation, and studies have shown that it also has an impact. So... Um, I think every minute uh, you can you can meditate, and the way you actually will meditate, what kind of exercise you're doing, um, is 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 good. Don't don't put the bar too high. Don't be as you said. This is this was a bad session or whatever. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, I'm. Uh, uh, seeing this as a personal journey, you you, you just try these things out. Uh, and then depending on the needs of the moment, you will do this or the other thing. A body scan will, for example, help my wife fall asleep. It's not my kind of thing. And then, uh, so we all got these, these different exercises. Then again, maybe this is my personality, but, uh, sometimes I want to try new things. So, so right now I'm in this, in this mantra, uh, meditation in the book. Also, there's David Lynch talking about, you know, um, what he's doing with transcendental meditation. So, um, I think we all have different needs and different, you know, um, personalities, types of how we actually uh, do this. And, and it would be strange if we compare it again with sports, that one would say, you know, you you, you should go swimming. And, Everyone and should fight. do swimming. Yeah, precisely. precisely. So that when, when I hear that also in the field of meditation, I become a little bit, whoa, this is, this is strange, right? So... Um, Find someone who, who, and also the way you, you mentioned um, the, the, the wearables and some people like having these feedbacks and numbers. Fine. It's, it's great apps now. And, and some of my patients really are uh, happy. Others hate it and it makes them nervous. Uh, uh, so, so that, I think, is the, is the challenge. Just try it out and then for yourself um, find out what, what is uh, good for you. There's an analogy that someone told me when I was discussing, I'd hit a bit of a wall with my meditation practice and I'd been doing Shinzen Jung's five ways to know yourself, um, which is a combination of focus to mindfulness, like classic mindfulness meditation. And um, I'd, been, I'd been doing it for a long time, like nearly three years, I think. So like 500 sessions or something like that I'd got in under this one particular type. There's various uh, little iterations within that, but it's essentially the same practice. And he said, why would you think that the boat which carried you across the river would get you over land on the other side? And I was like, dude, that's such a good analogy that you have particular practices that work for particular bits of time, areas within your life. Any powerlifter that's listening, anyone that's ever tried to do weight training knows you don't stick to the same exercises from when you start the gym. You cycle through them. You periodize the different things that you do. But again, because what 
is happening internally within the texture of our own mind is so murky to ourselves and there aren't these existing sort of bodies of knowledge that are quite as common as we have in other pursuits like sports and athletics and stuff like that it's very difficult to actually learn these lessons and for someone to say to me hey man like why would you think that the boat that took you across the river would get you on across land on the other side that was like a hammer blow because i was like right brilliant so i'm now part way through kind of searching for what my new pursuit will be for a little while i'm looking at maybe doing zogchen from your conversation with sam harris that really sort of opened up um some curiosity around that i like the idea of this sort of non-dual perspective and then um what else have i been looking the sedona method which is actually uh, a lot more of a, a sort of a cerebral type of an interpersonal type of meditation that seems that seems fascinating but yeah it's um it's an endlessly interesting world to delve into and the fact that you can do it at all times within your own mind is is really really good you looked as well you talk in the book about happiness can you explain how meditation relates to phenomenological happiness but on a neurological level how does that even work so again um it's a challenge to define happiness right and the, the pursuit of happiness and um we can't be permanently happy right when we had the first uh, antidepressants prozac and you know the um Americans taking this to be super happy, which is, is it's a challenge. The life is not just always um, uh, a Hollywood scenario. And, and then how do you deal with those challenges? Um, and seeing meditation as just something to make you happy or just something that can uh, reduce stress. or it, it's, it's way more than that, right? Uh, but it definitely permits you to maybe... First of all, listen to your own emotions. It's a question that we we often uh, ask, a kind of uh, polite, uh, how do you do? Well, how do you do? And I'm fine. I'm fine. But how do you really do? How are you? It's, it's not so easy. Um, and, and that already for me is because you're... I understand also one of those athletes of the mind and doing the uh, higher, uh, more advanced courses and, and practices. But um, the people I see in my consultation, uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, have their, uh, you know, negative priors and, and, and it's just inviting them to try this out. This is not something magical. Uh, and yes, I, I do believe it can make you more happy. And coming back to my favorite guinea pig, Mathieu Ricard, he, journalists call him the, the most happy the happiest person man alive. Yeah, exactly. Alive, which he says is ridiculous. Uh, it's definitely uh, not true. And, and how could we know that? But, but indeed, uh, he, he is uh, kind of showing the opposite brain pattern as as people who are depressed and um how is that characterized so so well we, we uh again this uh prefrontal area here that plays a role in emotion um control and how during the different brain scans uh he, he his brain and, and emotional status reacted uh, comes to the conclusion that yes his happiness circuits but there is no such thing as a happiness region or a happiness um chemical right it's it's really uh networks in a soup of neurotransmitters uh permanently changing again um but yes uh it permits you to 
as you said in the beginning, um, react to the reality of what's happening to us uh, in, 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 a, in a different way. Um, and it is interesting to try and understand the, the neuroscience behind it, but I definitely wouldn't be too arrogant. Uh, I, I, I've, uh, the past 25 years with the team, trying to understand the human mind. And uh, sometimes I, I hear from colleagues like, you know, we've, we've got it all explained and, and nothing is, is further from the truth. Uh, we don't understand how from something material, uh, my favorite organ here, and the brain is definitely important, but we can't explain how from something, an object like this, something immaterial, thoughts, perceptions, emotions arise. So really, I think at one point, and also as, you know, I had a Christian um, education, then went to university, very critical thinking. And of course, I'm a scientist. I will always confront what I think to understand with what I think to measure. But when we talk about consciousness, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Can we say we now made some advance with all these sexy brain scans and, and images? Can we say we maybe understood 50% of the problem or 5% or 0.005%? We just ignore what we ignore. And, and talking about our ignorance and just being a bit, um, yeah, uh, looking at it with more uh, wonder and 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 is is i think good and and kind of the personal um experience you can even call it spirituality i really think that that this is one of the biggest mysteries and and um i'm naively optimistic that uh, we can increase or maybe i should say reduce our ignorance um give it a try but but it's it's a challenge and it makes you humble that is your meditation coming to bear in your professional world. That is the equanimity that you've learned to not fixate or suppress the things that come up during your meditation. And you're now scaling that across your research. You know, this is your life's work. This is what you've dedicated yourself to. And you're someone now who's manifesting physically in not just the words that you say, but in the way that you approach the, the calling that you have in life. You're saying, I'm curious about what is going to happen but i'm neither fixating nor suppressing on the results that come from it i hope that we find more but it doesn't matter if we don't it's just naturally in interesting i mean man like if that's not a a beautiful um explanation for why you can have a scalable version of meditation that it's not just the the state change or the trait change of the texture of your own mind but actually the way that you can be within the world as well i think that's i think that's awesome you looked at you looked at free divers as well didn't you look at some world record free diver guy that can dive hundreds of meters on a single breath what did you learn from them so guillaume Neri, yeah again our uh area of expertise is the damaged brain and trying to improve our care for coma survivors uh but looking at those other guys those athletes of the mind not just the, the buddhist monks uh but these um yeah, uh, world record holders, Guillaume uh, Neri uh, is a um, uh, French world champion, came to the lab um, and permitted us to look at how the brain 
works when you're holding your breath, uh, in his case, for seven, eight minutes, which is really impressive. And he's in an altered state of consciousness. Uh, you can look at his movies in, in YouTube. He's, uh, you know, seeing things down there is, is really um, terribly interesting. And it reminded me when I heard him speak about our study on near-death experiences, actually. And sometimes he's seeing himself uh, from the outside. He's feeling extremely well um despite so, despite again, being 100 meters under the water exactly uh <laughs> 120 meters uh down there and and so yeah we we are about to publish uh the workings of his mind and brain um and those other apnea uh champions so so it's interesting for us again to learn from these extremes uh we um also have the astronauts. Huh? So uh, there are now seven up there um, in the International Space Station, and they uh, are put in the MRI scanner in Moscow because not so long ago was only Russia sending them. And and then when they come back uh, from sometimes long periods of zero gravity, it's it's a challenge, and we're preparing to leave this planet, go to Mars, and so on. So again, there a wonderful opportunity for us and the team to study. Um, Another type of athletes, the the astronauts, the cosmonauts. So, so all wow. of that is very, very interesting. Um, Have you got any predictions? And, Have... uh, one other very special person is uh, Corinne Sombrin. Got you. Who is um, shaman? I, I uh, uh, learned a lot from her uh, experiences when she was in Mongolia, and and so now we're comparing. Well. What is different between those different exercises of meditation and hypnosis, which is something we also use in a medical context with uh, uh, cognitive trance, uh, shamanic trance. So uh, fascinating and how it compares, as you just mentioned, these athletes as Guillaume Neri who are able to do uh, extraordinary things. Before, I want to do um, try and give people an opportunity to delve into the texture of their own mind if we've got if we've got time and you'd be willing to to give them something interesting maybe open monitoring or something like that but before that i had a guy on the show a few months ago a guy called paul evans and he is the uh, director of a big events company out in dubai and a few years ago probably about 10 years ago he was put into a medically induced coma for about three months he'd had a, a kidney, a particular type of kidney failure, rapid onset kidney failure due to overdrinking. He was partying a lot and he was put into a coma for three months. And he wrote a book called When I Wake Up. And in this book, he explains how he lived during this coma in Singapore for years. He ran a team of salespeople. He could tell you the color of the tie that he wore when he went to work, the number plate of the car that he got into, the brand of toothpaste that he used, the different people who worked for him. He got up, he went to work, he went home, he had a coffee, he had food, and he existed through this four-year period. During this time, in his uh, altered world, altered universe, his dad passed away. So his dad dies while he's in this and his family are there around the bed. And apparently, at some point through this, they were sat around the bed and could see tears streaming down his face, but they didn't know why. And 
they think, or at least Paul's hypothesis, is that this was the period where during his altered state of consciousness he was burying his father. How re replicable, realistic even is this? Because this story sounds so insane, and I was sat there just sort of with my jaw open listening to him talk. Is this the sort of thing that you've encountered in your work? Yes, of course. So the past 25 years and those hundreds of people we see surviving a severe um, brain damage and then often confounded by a pharmacological coma, where it's very hard for us to know, well, when did this actually happen? Uh, you know, they go through intensive care and then um, the whole time they stay in, in the hospital and then, and then rehab. So I somehow... Um, over time, you know, um, I just try to listen very carefully to what these people tell us because uh, consciousness is a subjective first person experience. He is the only one knowing what was happening right then. And I think historically we made the error to consider consciousness as binary, all or nothing. And, and that's wrong. You can be more or less awake, more or less aware of what's going on around you, of yourself. And another historical error, I think, and we've contributed to, to, to showing scientifically uh, how we've been underestimating um, the workings of the mind in case of severe brain damage. It's not because someone, of course, can no longer express uh, her or his thoughts or feelings and people in coma cannot talk. We have no nonverbal communication. And so we tend to, you know, um, of course, our measure of consciousness is, is making inferences based on the motor response. And it's not because people are not responding that in each and every case, nothing is going on in their brain and mind. And, and so that became very clear with all the, the brain scans. Uh, so we, we should be more careful. And near-death experiences are another example. So anyone listening right now, if you had one of these experiences, please share them with us. Uh, uh, you will help. We are about 40 people uh, trying to understand consciousness. What's the email? I know you've got an email address. What's the email address? So for near-death experiences, it's NDE at uliege.be um, and anything related to coma it's coma at uliege.be i think it's it's really important for us to just shut up and listen because i never had one of these experiences and I, sometimes i feel like you know the guy who thinks he knows everything about color vision and imagine i would even understand everything about what's happening in the brain, the parts of the, you know, um, brain regions and neurotransmitters, but I myself would be colorblind, right? Um, so that theoret theoretical knowledge is different from the feeling itself. Imagine one day I would see colors, something, you know, would change. And maybe historically again, and this is going back to Descartes, um, Je pense donc je suis, I think therefore I am. And we've been also in the educational system we were discussing. It's all about, you know, thinking and knowing. And what about I perceive therefore I am? And, and I think that's maybe the challenge. We're uh, comparing our brains to computers. Um, it's not a computer and we should invest more in what makes us human, irrational, intuitive. Um, so a challenge there. 
Can we do a practice which can give people a, a novel insight into the texture of their own mind? Maybe something that's not just the breathing. Have we got something else, like an open monitoring or something like that? Anything else you can suggest? So uh, whatever classical exercise indeed would be just to focus your attention to the breathing. We know that it's it's a very interesting exercise, I believe. Um, but you can also kind of put your spotlight of attention to your um, outside world. So I don't know what you're seeing right now. I'm in front of a window. I'm very lucky. Uh, so whatever you see, um, if you have a window, well, why don't you just look out of the window and, and maybe discover that visual scene um, in a new way. And you can appreciate the colors. Uh, I right now see uh, trees and leaves and, and I can uh, really focus my attention on all those little nuances of the, the, the different types of green. And so um, enjoy what is coming through my senses and be very aware of the here and now of uh, whatever the visual input uh, is there now. And you can then play with other modalities. And um, why not now pay attention to what we hear? Um, maybe you will suddenly become aware of the, the noise of your uh, heating system or some noises from outside, people talking, animal, dog barking, whatever. And again, you can play with your attention. Now maybe bringing it to what you feel. Maybe you sit down and, and what's coming in again through these senses and appreciate kind of your own weight, um, different parts of your body or even your clothing. So suddenly you can focus and appreciate the awareness of, you know, the little pressure of your clothes. And again, do this for the time um, you can decide on the different modalities uh, and appreciate how you can decide to bring attention to different uh, parts of your existence. And that's a very simple exercise uh where uh you uh you can enjoy um the power of the mind and and uh, experience things a little bit differently the fascinating thing that i i find about open monitoring and um walking meditations as well especially when you really start to tune in is all of the things which are sensory inputs which you do not indulge in noticing throughout the day so specifically touch i think is a really good one touch is almost there for most of us really as just an alert system it's, that's too hot that's too sharp that's too whatever so right now i know both me and you are standing up because we are 21st century desk workers who are concerned about our posture but for everybody that's sitting and listening to this the sensation of the seat on your body and the clothes on you, you're wearing clothes all day every single day and yet do you ever notice the sensation of clothes on your body, despite the fact that it's covering almost all of your body? Well, almost never. But you can do that. You can, like tuning a radio, an old FM, AM radio, 
you can allow your consciousness to tune itself into that frequency to get the level of fidelity with which you are focusing on the sensations that are coming in. You can tune it to that point where you can feel the seat beneath you, beneath your legs, or the, the floor beneath your feet. And then when you can hear the different sounds, maybe you notice there is something coming in from outside of the headphones that's beyond just my voice, or maybe you hear that actually I haven't cleaned up the audio of this, this track particularly well, and there's a tiny little bit of buzz in the background, and I wonder what that is. And that, just understanding that simply in the most mundane of experiences, there is essentially a bottomless pit that you can dig into. I think that uh, that's why meditation is interesting to me. Yeah. And the deeper that you can get access to that experience, I think the richer and richer your life is. Absolutely. And so uh, that's actually uh, what we've been studying for the past uh, decade. So you have these awareness networks. We, we just mentioned external awareness, internal awareness, these are two networks, emotional networks. So these are the exercises. You can just focus your attention, uh, observe. Uh, and that, that's really very, very powerful. And, and you can do it in a very formal way, but you can also just when you go running um, for, you know, uh, doesn't need to be your whole run, but just decide, okay, now I'm paying attention to my feet hitting the ground. And I, I can really appreciate and you can really break it down. Or now I'm focusing my attention to what I'm seeing during the run. And so and then sometimes you just let it go and, and have your mind thinking about anything. So it's that's the exercise. Uh, just uh, playing with these things. Uh, you can do the guided meditation if you like it with the apps and then you can do it yourself without any help uh, doing it alone doing it you know, with your partner or with a bunch of people. So that's quite uh, individual again. And, and the challenge is to find what fits you best at this specific moment in time. Very much so. Uh, for people who might be thinking, I wonder where to get started, I would highly recommend Headspace is fantastic. Calm is fantastic. Sam Harris's Waking Up app is also really, really good. If you Google Five Ways to Know Yourself by Shinzen Jung, it is free and it is the most comprehensive explanation of how the different areas of mindfulness meditation come together in, from a sort of a practical perspective. Also, the No Nonsense Meditation Book, A Scientist's Guide to the Power of Meditation by Mr. Stephen Lorries, MD, will be linked in the show notes below on Amazon, of course. Um, where else should people go if they want to keep up with the fascinating research that you do? Where else can people head? So there's uh, a lot of opportunities, uh, as you just mentioned. Uh, something I prescribe then in my um, outpatient clinic is mindfulness-based stress reduction. So you have these eight-week programs, and I know you're in good hands. You have someone who's been trained, and the science has actually shown that uh, the different exercises you see there uh, can be beneficial and will lead to these uh, changes in, in brain structure. People can go on a retreat. So, so it's, it's really this, this journey. There's in the book a number of websites uh, for those who, uh, who like it. You mentioned already the wearables, the apps on the internet. There's uh, really so many ways 
your podcast uh, to find your own uh, your own way. So uh, I think the only thing you need uh, to start meditating is your own curiosity and motivation. And uh, if that is there, you know, you can start your journey. And I wish you a very pleasant one. I love it. I'm going to finish it with the quote that you actually begin the book with, which you say, you don't have to control your thoughts. You just have to stop them, stop letting them control you. Exactly. But we can talk about it and read about it. The challenge is now really to uh, experience it because, you know, it's happening between your ears. Nobody can meditate for you. So that's that's the invitation uh, for me it was a discovery. I, I really enjoyed how from a skeptic, actually, uh, I heard only negative things about meditation during my training in medical school and later in neurology. And now, you know, we're having this this discussion and, and the research going on um, really showing. Uh, and there's hundreds of scientific papers every year that there is added value. So hopefully um, more people will be able to uh, try it out. If we haven't convinced them today, then I'm going to give up. Stephen, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. 